You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant. Welcome to the third episode of the Olson Thielen Q&A Over Coffee podcast. I'm your host, Tom Pesch, CPA, CMA, and today we are grateful to have Randy Creevel join us. Randy has an MBA from the Cal State Los Angeles. He's a former business owner. I think he told us he owned, he owned three businesses once upon a time. He's currently with, uh, he's a senior M&A advisor with the True North Mergers and Acquisitions which some of you may recognize as a sister company of Sunbelt Business Advisors, and he's also a licensed business broker. So Randy has over 35 years experience in business ownership, management, consulting. Today we invited him onto the show to discuss exit planning for business owners on today's episode, I Want Out, Planning Your Exit. And we've heard this before. Yes, we have. <laughs> so we're, we're grateful to have Randy with us today. So we want to cover basically five broad topics, and we're kind of roll through these fairly quickly. Uh, one, reason for selling. Two, the initial planning set steps. Uh, three, the exit plan. Four, the letter of intent. And then five, the business valuation. And Randy has worked with me on several uh, transactions over the years. I think I've known Randy for 15 years. Sounds about right. And uh, we've played one round of golf, I remember for sure. <laughs> and we've done a lot of business together. And it's been very, very enjoyable. And Randy's uh, very knowledgeable about business sales and acquisitions. So let's just kind of get into it. So reasons for selling. So Randy, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing and what your business owners are coming to you and they're saying, I want out. Re- what are their reasons for selling? What do you sure. What do you see? Well, their reasons are are, are varied. Um, of, uh, oftentimes, they're personal reasons. They want to sell for uh, ready to retire. Maybe there's health issues, uh, family issues, family concerns, whatever. Uh, but it's also very much a financial decision. And what's really important for me as as an M and A advisor and as a business broker is to understand the true motivation behind a business owner's reason for selling. Because sometimes the deeper we dig into that, we realize that selling is something they'd like to do, but it may not make sense for them to do it right now. And some of the things that we wanna sit down and talk to business owners about is to understand first and foremost, if they had this conversation with their family members, Mm -hmm. wives, children, what have you, because it may be that they have an exit option right there with the family. For right. sure, okay. young uh, young son, young daughter, uh, brothers. Yep. Uh, we work with a lot of family business. And I'm sure you see a lot of it, and you're right. And sometimes there's people inside the business. They may or may not even be family members. Sure. So we like to help a business owner explore what are my exit options, and more often than not, the exit option is selling, because they don't have a transition plan in place. They don't have the next generation that's looking to be the, the you know business owner or they don't have what we would call an incumbent buyer. So to me, it's important that we explore this and that we understand their reason for selling. You know, the other part of it is the financial side. So one piece of advice that we give every single business owner is if you don't have a wealth advisor or a financial planner, get one, okay? You need to make sure you understand that if you sell your business for $5 million, what does that mean? 
okay? Does that give you the financial capabilities or capacity that you need to retire? Or is it just going to be a supplemental income stream and that, you know what, five million is not going to do it. So and you better stay the course. And then, of course, we've got to clip that for taxes. Absolutely. To that. So Absolutely you'd, right. You'd be amazed at how many business owners come to us and they say, well, it's worth all this money. And then we kind of boil it down. And it's like, well, that really, when you take yeah. it out per month, maybe it's a little short. Yeah. And, you know, the thing, too, that we help business owners understand is, you know, use the $5 million example. If your business is worth $5 million, it's a rare day that somebody's going to come to the closing table with a check for $5 million. Okay. I mean, it does happen on occasion, but more often than not, it's going to be some cash at closing. It's going to be probably a seller note will be part of the, the transaction structure. In many cases, there's rollover equity involved in which the seller actually leaves some, well, basically rolls over some of their consideration, some of the proceeds into equity in the acquiring entity. And sometimes there's things like earnouts that are involved. So in the context of the reasons for selling, one of the things that we've observed over the recent years is that people are working longer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the days where you had to get kicked out at 65 or you, you were tired at, at 67, they're, they're kind of decreasing because of the nature of the service nature of the economy and the, the, yeah. the professions. Um, I've had doctor types working until they're 70. And then at the conversely, though, I've had some people say it's too stressful. They, they got to get out. Yep. So when they're, they're looking for a reason for selling, it might be that they're, they're trying to figure out what's next mm -hmm. in their life. It might be they're trying to monetize their investment. For sure. Uh, it could be that their family needs them at home. I've had some people have to exit out of the workplace because they've had an ill wife or because um, they, just, they just have reasons to be gone out of the workplace. So... Uh, do you have anything that's most common when the people are showing up? I want out. What's the most common reason, do you think? Burnout. Burnout. People are tired. You know, I, I'd have to really think long and hard about a number. <laughs> but I would say, on average, the business owners that we talk to have probably been doing what they have been doing for 20, 25, maybe 30 years. And they've devoted a, an enormous chunk of their life to running a business. And as a former business owner, I understand how lonely... <laughs> it can be and how frustrating it can be to be a business owner because ultimately the decisions that need to be made rest at your desk. Mm -hmm. You can have a great management team in place, you can have great advisors in place, but ultimately you are making the final call on some enormously critical decisions for yourself, for the company, for your employees. It's a lot of weight that you're carrying by I, doing that. I always say it's, it's weighty. It's a very weighty task to it be is. responsible. I have a friend of mine uh, in the West Suburbs who says there are 1,500 families that rely on our business. It's a fairly right. large business. Yeah. He says it's a very weighty. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure that, that people put onto themselves. And, you know, I, I, I so respect the business owners that I talk to that feel the weight and feel the pressure because it's important to them. They want to make the, the best decisions possible, not only for their company. They may have shareholders. Okay, but for their employees and their family members. So, yeah, it's, it's probably the single most common reason why people eventually reach a stage where they're considering selling because it, it, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress. And to make kind of a, a um, comparison, uh, we have a client in the southwest corner. He says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. <laughs> and go. the best time to plan to sell your business is maybe five or eight or ten years ago 
Yeah, I mean, ideally, we would love to talk to business owners when they're uh, five years out, okay? Um, we, don't, we don't always have that luxury. I would say far more often than not, business owners approach us when they've reached a decision they want to sell. And that's fine. I mean, that's what we do. We help prepare their business for market. We get it into the marketplace, and, and we help them find the right buyer so that they have the exit that they're looking for. But ideally, if we can get in front of that business owner, say five years in, in front of the exit event, it allows us to do a couple things. First of all, and I recommend this for every business owner, whether you're two years out, 10 years out, you know, whatever it is, have a valuation performed on your business. And the valuation is incredibly important for a couple of reasons. First of all, in all likelihood, your business is your single most valuable asset. To me, it's critical that you would know what it's worth. And not because some friend of yours sold a business a year ago and said, hey, I sold it for five times EBITDA, okay? Or anecdotal information. No, you need to have somebody who's, who's an expert at putting valuations together so that when you understand what your business is worth, you can share that with your wealth advisor. You can plug that into your exit planning from a financial standpoint, okay? So that's number one. Number two, it's not just about what your business is worth today. What can you do to make it worth more tomorrow? And part of the valuation process is walking through something that at True North we call them value drivers. What are the, what are the things that are, are driving extra value to your business? And conversely, what parts of your business are maybe lagging in those areas? And a couple real simple examples. Um, if, you're bus- if you're a business owner and your business is super owner-centric, and by that I mean you've got a business owner that's also the sales manager, the vice president of operations, the purchasing manager, okay? I mean, good for that person that they got all those talents. But guess what? As a buyer, I look at that and I go, what incredible risk I'm taking on if I buy this business? What happens if something happens to the owner? Even if he or she stays on for six months or, or a year, whatever. So that's a huge, huge exposure, huge risk for a buyer. But I also look at it as a huge opportunity for the business owner. Now's a great time to assess the fact that if you were to bring on some really good, talented people in management positions, that so let's say you're doing all the sales, wean yourself off the sales process. Then what are, what's the next thing that you're, you're so involved in? Wean yourself off the operation side of it. Now you build a strong management team that, that creates a lot less risk for a buyer. And if you're doing it right, you're freeing up your time to really be the long-term thinker, to be the person that, that's driving this business forward. And you've got the people in place that were doing the things you were doing before. So to me, that's just a huge win-win. How do you make the business less owner-centric? And another real, real simple one is customer concentration, okay? Generally speaking, if you have a customer that represents more than 20% of your business, it becomes a risk to the buyer. If you've got two or three uh, customers that represent over half the business, it represents a huge risk. Well, if you're five years out, you've got plenty of time to put initiatives into place, to start growing your customer base, to bring in you know, different revenue streams and, and different ways in which you no longer have those customer concentrations. So those are the types of things that we walk business owners through. When we, w- when we talk about evaluation, we talk to them about what's driving it and what you can do to increase its value. And typically, businesses are sold on a multiple, usually of EBITDA, okay? Um, so 
if a business is selling for a four multiple of EBITDA versus a five multiple, okay, why is one selling for four? Why is one selling for five? It's the value drivers. So that's what we walk through with, with business owners, help them understand what they can do as they continue to grow the business. So strangely enough, the uh, in the financial reporting practice, we have these footnotes that say, hey, uh, 30% of your sales are you there know, you go. concentrating with these, yes. with these four, three customers. It's actually a risk issue. Yes. And strangely enough, I just recently uh, helped close a transaction with a client, and one of the stipulations in the agreement was that a customer had to do a certain volume or they were going to get a discount, a ding sure. on the value. Absolutely. So to that point, exactly. Those concentrated customers are a, a large risk. So, and you have time initially to yes. get ahead of that. So moving off the reasons for selling, initial planning steps. So, you know, you're anticipating the transaction. You're trying to get out about five years. Mm -hmm. You've got to create a team. You want to have an accountant, a good lawyer, a good broker. You want to create these value drivers, these laggers or their mm -hmm. drivers. Um, what we always suggest is that you kind of spruce up and try to clean up your financial reporting. We've had many transactions happen off of tax returns, but the larger deals, and I know that with True North, you're working on some larger um, second or upper well, end tier. Yeah, we call it low, lower middle market. They're low, businesses okay. that typically are going to sell between 10 and $150 million. Okay. And so they typically have some sort of financial reporting that yes. is a, above a tax return. But boy, when you start initially planning, we advise clients to, to for lack of a better word, to kind of get the junk off the books. I mean, and I hate to say <laughs> you, it that you're, way. You're preaching to the choir, Tom. I know. I mean, and, but <laughs> We've this all is, seen it. I mean, oh, it's yeah, well, crazy. This is the great advantage of getting out in front of this and not coming to me saying, I want to sell today, right? Mm -hmm. It's, hey, I'm thinking about selling maybe five years out. One of the first pieces of advice is a piece of advice that I do give to business owners is clean up your books. Yep. Okay. Now's the time to not treat your CPA as your bookkeeper. Okay. Right. They're your sort of you know they're your CPA. Take their advice. Clean up the books. Stop running all kinds of personal expenses through the business. Okay. And make sure that your financials are very understandable to ultimately a buyer. Or keep in mind. A buyer's not going to show up to the closing table with a check for your business. In all likelihood, they're going to be borrowing funds or they're going to have covenants that, that they, they need to have in place with their lending institutions. So they're going to scrub through, through the client, you know, the business owner's books. These things have to make sense. And so they have to be able to prove cash flow. Yep. And the most prudent advice is to do just that, clean up the books and then spruce up the books so that they can prove cash flow because ultimately, oftentimes a business is the value is predicated on its cash flow Absolutely. and its ability to repay a debt because if, if they put a loan on the deal, it's got a cash flow yep. over and above the normal labor cost. So the planning steps, you got to get out, you got to get out in front of it about two to five years. I always tell the, the professional firms, you've got to do management succession. Like for example, at Olson Thiel, I mean, we've been around a hundred and 102 years, I think it is. And we've done, <laughs> we've, we've gone through, I don't know, six or seven gener I don't know uh, the multiple partners we're very actually very good at it and sure. those of us that are in the senior spot we we actively pra practice that and we know how valuable it can be well one thing to you know to kind of close the loop on this is when we're talking larger transactions these lower middle market say you know 20 30 million dollar transactions um, so much of it is all about the numbers and and the quality of the numbers 
Um, I mean, I can't remember a transaction I've been involved with uh, that hasn't required a quality of earnings report, which is a very extensive, it's basically, you know better than I, it's akin to an audit in terms yep. of just the level of complexity and the level of detail they go through. So to me, I advise our clients, work with your CPA firm and seriously considering having your books reviewed on an annual basis. Not just compiled, not just a kind of a cursory overview, but do a little more in depth to make sure you're doing everything right. Because when it comes time to due diligence, when we find that buyer, we've got a letter of intent in place, everybody's happy, the price is set, the terms are set. This quality of earnings report is a colonoscopy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, it is very invasive, very intrusive. So if your books are in order, if you work with your CPA to make sure these books are, are, are bulletproof, that quality of earnings uh, you know, exercise is gonna go Go, go by well for you. And it becomes kind of the real deal. The, the yes. value number becomes the real deal because it's real cash flow well, and it's real value. Point I made earlier is, you know, buyers abhor risk, right? So if we can present ahead of time, you know, annually reviewed financials that we are confident that the CPA firm can stand behind we've already reduced the level of concern or risk from the buyer before we've even gotten their offer, okay? Because if there's a concern about the books, it's gonna be baked into the buyer's offer. We may not know it, we may not know how they're accounting for it, but I guarantee you, you give me a business that has crystal clear, you know, squeaky clean books that have their CPA firm standing behind them, the buyers are not discounting their offer because of their concern of the financials of the business. To me, every business owner that spends that money in making sure their books are, are, are good and accurate, they'll get that back and then some in, in the purchase price we're gonna get for their business. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the reasons, the initial planning steps. I wanna move to uh, the letter of intent. Sure. And I want to talk about that and lastly, the business valuation, kind of the concept. So the letter of intent, as we've seen them, they can be drafted by the client or they can be drafted by outside legal. Um, but what do you see as the letter of it, the purpose of the letter of intent, sure. commonly known as an LOI? Mm -hmm. And how is it, how does it interface with the APA, the asset purchase yep. agreement? or the SPA, the yeah, stock purchase agreement, <laughs> whatever the lawyers want yeah. to call them. Or but the, the defendant purchase agreement. Or, yeah. you know, how do they interplay with the document that get ultimately gets executed, the LOI? Yeah, wow, that's, a, that's a really good question. I'll, I'll take one step back from that. Sure. Um, often in, in our process at True North, we put together something that, that we refer to as a quiet auction process. And what that does is we share information with prospective buyers so that they can make a determination whether or not this is a, an acquisition that makes sense for them. So what we initially do is we ask for buyers, we give them access to summary financial information as opposed to tax returns and detailed financial statements and ask them to prepare what we call an indication of interest, an IOI, okay? An indication of interest is, a, it is the buyer looking at this from 30,000 feet, okay? Let's see, the business is doing $20 million in revenue, $4 million in EBITDA, no customer concentration issues in a growing industry, blah, blah, blah. They will then put an indication of interest in which it may be a two-page document. From what we're seeing, we think the business, we would be willing to pay 
between whatever, 18 and $22 million. Uh, we'd see it structured with this um, the 20% seller carry, we'd like 10% equity rollover. So now we have a real quick snapshot as to whether or not we might have something here. And then the buyer or the seller can actually look at that from the buyer and determine if they're actually the credit worthy, Correct. whether they got the right management right. people, the right philosophy, because maybe the seller wants to keep some key people they want to protect. Yeah. Um, well, what we, what we want to do is what we want to do is we want to avoid us, you know, not only spending a lot of time with a buyer that ultimately would, it, it's never going to work. Right. But we also don't want to share a lot of highly confidential information with a prospective buyer if we know that deal's got no chance of ever seeing the light of day. So we do put that, that step up before an LOI because now the LOI becomes a much more detailed document. The LOI now creates a specific number. Instead of saying, hey, we'd be, we're thinking the business might be, you know, we might be willing to pay between 18 and 22 million. Hey, we're gonna pay $20 million for the business. It's going to be $12 million cash at closing. It's gonna be a $5 million seller note amortized over 12 years with a four-year balloon. We're gonna have an earnout component of it because part of the business is a little risky to us, so we wanna make sure there's certain performance measurements that are met, and we'd also like the, uh, the seller to roll over some equity into our acquiring firm. Well, now we know exactly what they're willing to do, but we also ask them for other things. We also wanna get out in front of how's the purchase price gonna be allocated, okay? We're talking a $20 million transaction, and as you very well know, oh, Tom, yeah. what's good for the buyer <laughs> is bad for the seller and vice versa. And we start talking about purchase price allocation and tax allocation. So we want to have a head start on that in the LOI. Okay. We also want to know in the LOI, are there going to be working capital requirements? Okay. Typically for deals this size, there are going to be a working capital. They're going to want working capital baked into the purchase price. Okay. Tell us how you're going to calculate that. Okay, you don't have to tell us the number. Tell us that you're going to use whatever, a 24-month average, and you're going to include AR and AP and what, what have you. So what we want to do is make sure the type of uh, negotiation points, if you will, that are absolute you know, deal breakers, that we have alignment on those. Now we go into, now the thing about an LOI is it's non-binding. Right. Okay, now there's provisions in it, confidentiality things, a documentation that's shared. I mean. There are parts of the LOI that are binding, but by being non-binding, it means we've only gotten maybe halfway to the finish line. Right. We've agreed at 10,000 feet now what, what the parties can agree to. Now due diligence begins. Now the buyer really starts digging in the quality of earnings report. Right. Um, in all likelihood, they're going to want to, if it's a bigger business, they're going to have meetings with some of the key managers of the business. They may even want to interview customers, okay? All this stuff happens throughout the process, but we don't let any of the highly sensitive things happen until we're far enough down the road in which the buyer has said, yes, due diligence is complete. Okay, we're good with the financials, we're good with this, we're good with that. Part then of that process is drafting the definitive purchase agreement. Now, if it's an asset sale, it's an asset purchase agreement, stock sale, stock purchase agreement. That's where the rubber really meets the road, okay? These documents were an LOIs typically, I don't know, four to nine pages in length. Yep. The stock purchase agreement's probably gonna be 50 pages in length with potentially hundreds of pages of schedules and disclosures. I think I saw 118 on this deal we did in January. 
Yeah, I, I think the record I've been involved with was over a thousand pages of schedules. And those are not those negotiations are not inexpensive. You get no. legal going through every particular uh, item. A couple of things just to add yep. to, to piggyback onto the provisions in the LOI is you may have a guarantee on some debt, some carryback debt. We just had that happen uh, sure. on this deal we closed in April, and you want you want to. Uh, definitively get the lease arrangements situated. You know, if the seller owns the building, they want to probably, the buyer wants to lock in a five-year with a yep. five-year option so they don't got to move. Yep. Um, and I, I, th what you described on these LOIs is just exactly what we went <laughs> through in January. Did you? Yeah. Although they went back 36 months, they took every financial, and they broke it down by month. It was a national firm out of Chicago, and they went through every line item trying to prove the cash flow yep. so they could they could justify the purchase price sure ultimately they did and at the end of the day they discovered that uh, it was a new client for us but the client in the in the previous years had not been filing uh, sales taxes in all their states oh and so they had a fairly significant holdback for a deferred tax item so yeah. those are part of, the, and they negotiated that up front with, say, with a range, a big range. It was th this is one thing that very, very few business owners or sellers are aware, aware of. When we start dealing in multi-million dollar transactions, in all likelihood, there are gonna be some holdbacks. Oh yeah. Okay, and that's to cover representations, indemnifications, and warranties, and things like that. And depending on the size of the transaction, and let's just say it's a $20 million transaction, okay? the buyer is absolutely going to set some funds aside in escrow to make sure all the representations that were provided during due diligence proved to be accurate you know that uh, that escrow account could be as as much as a million to two million dollars of the transaction that could be sitting in place for up to two years yes okay so another reason why something that we talked about really early on in this conversation tom is why we definitely want to make sure that business owners are talking to their financial planners, to their wealth advisors, as part of this process to understand, hey, if, if I'm selling my business for X, okay, but here are all the terms and here's all this, all, what am I getting? When am I getting it? How much am I netting out of this? So, you know, the financial planner, the wealth advisor is such a critical element in this whole process for these business owners. And boy, you'd be amazed at the provisions. I mean, you may not be, but our <laughs> listeners might uh, be amazed at the, the post-closing incentives uh, offered to the sellers typically to hold them in place and to yes. have them engage um, in a significant, genuine fashion. For sure. They'll have large bonuses out there. They'll have these holdbacks out there. Uh, the buyers are not just going to write a check, as you say, no. $20 million and let them skate. And they're not going to take on faith that uh, you've that disclosed way. everything. Yeah. and that you. I mean, fortunately for me, I can't recall dealing with a single client that I didn't feel was completely trustworthy mm -hmm. and above board. But when you're dealing with a complex business, it's tough to disclose and talk about every possible thing that you know about your business that the buyers should also know about the business. And that's why you have these holdover amounts. It's like, hey, just in case you withheld something that was pretty damn important, yep. okay? We just wanna make sure that uh, we're whole on this if indeed it, it, it became something detrimental to the business. The other thing too that I think is really worth mentioning because to me, this is a deal structure element that I'm seeing more and more common these days. And it's something that's referred to as an earnout. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yes. And I bring that up because earnouts are something that are performance based. It gets us something you mentioned earlier. Again, let's say we had a twenty million dollar deal. The buyer may not be comfortable committing to the full twenty million dollars because they are they made the twenty million dollar offer assuming the business was going to continue to grow at a five percent annual rate. So what's not uncommon is for for a buyer to say, listen, we'll give you eighteen million for the business. We're going to have a $2 million earnout, And as long as the business grows another 5% next year or you know, whatever the metric is, you'll get your $20 million. And to me, the earnout potentially is a huge win-win element in the LOI, in the purchase agreement, because what it allows is for the buyer and the seller to have a common interest, right? The, the seller now has a future event that they want to make sure happens. So guess what? Of course, they're going to call their customers and say, you know what? I was just purchased by the greatest buyer in the entire world. They are going to do such a good job for you. Life is going to be so good <laughs> for you guys. You're going to right? get all your shipments on time just like you have. Yeah. So the earnout is often a real, real scary concept for a seller because it's not a guarantee. You don't know you're going to make it, right? You, you don't know because no one can predict the future. But for me, I can typically get uh, sometimes a significant premium for a business. Now, I'll give you a, a really good example. I'm selling a business, uh, well, hopefully three weeks from now. Um, the purchase price is, well, I, w- I won't go specific numbers, but the earnout is going to provide the seller an opportunity to make about another 75% above and beyond the purchase price. And the purchase price is a fair purchase price, okay? We agreed ahead of time what our target was. We wound up getting that from the, from the buyer. But then I was able to negotiate a earnout portion because of an event that happened. One of their largest customers decided to sign an even larger long-term contract. Oh boy. And I went back to the buyer and I said, I hope you will agree that when you put your offer in, it was based on you know the current state of the business. Right. This is a game changer. And we're not saying we're going to take the business off the market and remarket it and you know, you know, get get a much higher price. We want this to be fair. We want this to be a win-win. And to the buyer's credit, they looked at this and said, yeah, that's a really, really good event. And you know what? Let's figure out a way that the sellers are happy if this stuff you know, happens and we're happy. And we negotiated a very, very significant earnout. So sometimes that earnout is a way of making sure the seller didn't leave any money on the table because they had a business that was w- w- was growing. Sometimes I call it the hurricane cone. Okay. As you know, you, when you graph up the numbers, you have a minimum buy. So in your example of a $20 million yep. sale, maybe what you'll do is you'll get a guarantee of 18, mm-hmm. but if you have, if the seller stays on and performs according to their projections, they have an opportunity to get an upper limit amount. Yep. In this case, maybe it's 20 plus two would be 22 million. Maybe on the on the things don't go well. Maybe it's 18 on the bo- on the low end. But it's kind of this cone concept, so it shares the risk yes. between the buyers and the sellers, and it's all performance based. Which who doesn't want to be accountable on the back end? If you have one yeah. more dip at the well, so sure. to speak, and you know you want to do as you say you will. Well, so, so you know the, the thing is. Um, the earnout is something that I just want to touch based on one, one uh, in a little more detail. Uh, and then I want to talk about rollover, rollover equity. Okay. So on the earnout, th- to me, the biggest challenge with the earnout is to make sure that it's fair. Okay. And by fair, I mean not just, well, 
I can make another $2 million if. It's what are the terms? How is it being measured? Okay. Um, is if it's based on profit, based on EBITDA, have we put in guardrails so the, the buyer can't all of a sudden burden this business with all kind of expenses right. and therefore reduce the EBITDA arbitrarily? Corporate overhead. Right. So my, you know, my, my advice is always stay as, top, as, as close to the top line as you can. Mm -hmm. right? Let's make it sales. Because sales, but you, know, you can't manipulate the profit on sales. You just go out there and you, you generate more sales. You make, make your earnout. So the takeaway from this is an earnout is a really, really great um, uh, you know, transaction feature, if you will. But it also has to be guardrails need to be put on it. It has to be something that can be fairly attained. Okay, so we're almost out of time. But I want to do just one more minute sure. on valuation. Okay. And I think it's important. Uh, what's your take on the concept of valuation? Why is it important? Well, it's important, A, the business owner really needs to know what their business is currently worth. They need to be able to plan that into their financial planning. And then secondly, understanding what went into the valuation, what's driving their value, what's holding the value back. I mean, to me, it's, it's the single most important tool that they should have in their tool belt as they're running their business. It's, to me, it's a no-brainer. And you, you know, when you manage your business then, you will potentially manage to drivers, value drivers, mm -hmm. and or you'll avoid value laggers. Yes. And you'll try to manage the business up in, you know, in the good and uh, possible way you can manage. And ultimately you grow your, your net worth over time. One thing I wanna add to that, and as a former business owner, I fell into this trap, okay? And the trap is you think, okay, great, I just got my valuation. My business is worth this. Man, if I just you know increase that top line, get more customers, do this, do that, the business is going to be worth more. The trap a lot of business owners fall into is growth for growth's sake is not a strategy. Growth profitably done is a strategy. So if your business is doing $10 million in sales, you don't want to drive it up to $12 million and didn't bring any more money down to the bottom line. So don't just go out there and try and find more customers and, and drive more revenue make sure you're doing it and you're not eroding your profit margins in doing so. Make sure the incremental sales is also giving you incremental profit. Okay, so I think we're, we're at the end of our, our allocated time. Randy, it's always a pleasure to see you. You're Tom, thanks for having me. It's always, a, it's always fun. A wealth of knowledge about how transactions work between us. We might have 80 years of experience. <laughs> Probably God. scary thought, isn't it? It's a very scary thought. But when you get to be senior like you and I in business experience, it's very valuable counsel. So I want to thank you again for coming in the My day. My pleasure. And uh, we always, always seek your advice on uh, certain transactions. Can't so wait for the next one. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Randy. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of our podcast episodes on the Q&A over coffee page on the Olson Thielen website. This is also a place where you can sign up to be notified whenever a new episode goes live. You can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.